Welcome to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm at Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore, with a local author, which allows us to be in person, at a distance, in the Boulder Bookstore. What have we been reading for the month of April, Arsene? We have been reading Tiny by Maraid Case. And uh, it's really a takeoff of Antigone, updated and... Um, it's just a wonderful book. I, th- I really enjoyed it, and I think our listeners will love it too. Well, it's great to have Maraid live in person in the Boulder Bookstore. Welcome. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. Well, for the uninitiated, those who don't know about Antigone, this Sophocles uh, Greek play that has been reimagined in, in so many uh, different iterations, remind us exactly what that is and why you were inspired to, to take Antigone as your jumping off point. So it's the story of a, of a teenage girl, and I think teenage girls are so smart in the way they see things so directly um, a lot of the time, and um, Tiny uh, Antigone was born into a complicated family, and um, the play itself is pretty short, and she has two brothers who fought each other in a civil war for um, control of the kingdom, and they killed each other, and the problem is that her uncle, the king, says that the one of them dishonored the family and the city so can't be buried properly. And Tiny says, Antigone says, no, this is my brother. We can't leave him out. We have to treat them both the same way. Um, so I, I really found that like the teenage voice and it was so powerful because she's right. You know, it's always more complicated, but she's not wrong. You know, it's what I found interesting in, in your book is in, in the previous kind of reimaginings or redoing of the uh, Antigone, it does focus a lot on the burial. But you, you didn't choose to do that. There isn't really a question of the burial here. So talk about how, where you decided to split off and, and how you made those decisions or did it just come naturally or what was the process? I, would th- I thought a lot about the burial and part of it is that the reason why she's buried is because the fact that she chooses to mourn her brother means that she can't really have a future. And so the idea is um, in the original, oh, you dishonored your family. You can never get married. You have no future. Like you must be rejected. And like, you know, we know that generally binaries are false. And so I thought there had to be other options for her. And grief is a thing that you always live with to some degree, but it's not always quite as heavy. And so I, I wanted to write a story where she grows through it and, um, learns how to see different kinds of light after having to go through something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a we'll t- we'll get to the grief in a bit, but I th- there's a there is a lightness to the text, and I, I kind of wanted to get at that. And so I was wondering if you could uh, read a piece from the from the book where it, it is kind of lighter, and it's about Tiny and her ability to love, and because the story is just about much about love as it is about grief, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, they are. They're two sides of, of a similar situation. I'm happy to read from it. Um, Loss is connected to love because without the one, the other means nothing at all. This is not a threat. It is a fact about the state of the universe. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, she tried on his pants and realized they had the same size hips. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, they gave each other bouquets of mimosa and mint. They wore mood rings on their pinky fingers until they went ice skating and froze both rings on a muddy color. They walked through the drive-thru and bought strawberry malts, extra malt, and ate them in the parking lot with spoons. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, Izzy took a picture of them looking at her and saw they loved her too. 
When Tiny and Hank fell in love, Tiny still turned off her phone when she slept at Izzy's house. She kept waking up to walk alone in the mornings. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, they biked through cherry blossoms. They biked through yellow leaves. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, she knitted him a snowdrop olive green hat, and he wore it all the time, in almost every season. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, he cooked pots of rice and garlic and chicken broth when she was sick. They fell asleep thigh to thigh, holding each other in one small bed. They sat in the middle seats at movies and by the windows on the bus. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, they watched home videos of tornadoes on the internet. They watched people mixing paint. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, the first person who woke up smiled quietly at the ceiling. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, Tiny realized she liked falling asleep holding people who weren't Izzy or herself. When Tiny and Hank fell in love, they went to basketball games at the local college. They sat high up because those seats were cheap and they could watch games like a pattern unfolding. They named the patterns together. That's author Maraid Case reading from her new novel, Tiny. It's so poetic. The writing throughout this is just beautiful. It's poetry. It's even how it's printed. I mean, how the text is displayed on certain pages. This is not, you know, your typical uh, novel in chapters. So, so take us through that, the stylistic elements of the book. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting. I really focus on the sentence as a writer and um, I've had a lot of jobs that involve poetry and I love a lot of poets and so in part that just feels like a natural space to be in um, and a lot of the design of the book is um, from Zach Dodson who also did the cover um, and is an old friend and um, was the original founder of Featherproof who published the book and so I felt really lucky that I got to work with a designer who I've like talked with in different ways and known over time and so I sent him the manuscript and he really did a lot of the design um, in a really beautiful way I think. It really, I think, adds to the experience of, of the reader. And, you know, as we were saying, this is inspired by Antigone. Um, and Tiny is uh, the, the titular ca- character um, of the, the book. You mentioned Izzy. She's her best friend, but she's almost like a sister. They grow up and they talk about, you know, their sister-like relationship. Hank, her boyfriend, lots of characters in the book. And there's deep love. And, and that was such a beautiful passage where you talked about how Tiny and Hank fell in love and what, when they fell in love, all these things happened and that's in such contrast to, to the grief which goes throughout the book because of course the bereavement uh, tiny loses her brother to suicide and the the two things are in such contrast because she loves so deeply and then she grieves so deeply because of that love that's lost and so it's such an exploration of grief and bereavement this book and from the perspective of a young person take us through why you really wanted to explore that in that way I think like Tiny listens to people so well and that can be beautiful because she sees everyone like she doesn't really ever have a moment where she blames her brother for making the decision that he did because she knows him so well and she saw that he was struggling and um, he was a uh, he's a war veteran and so in this version um, she has the one brother and he kills himself instead of two brothers killing each other because I was thinking about um, how trauma works and different kinds of ways so Tiny gets it Um, and that can be a beautiful thing because it means that she loves him she listens to him she really sees him and then she also has to continue on past him and I think that's part of it too right like if um, we all experience loss in our own ways but like it can be so hard to just imagine a future differently Um, and you can and you do it over time but um, 
Tiny really sees that clearly in a way that kind of makes her a pain to be around sometimes, <laughs> but like she's very direct about it. Yeah, the way grief and mourning are spoken about in so many original ways, and one of the things you said that I liked a lot was that for Tiny, her brother and her mother kind of died every day. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to go through it every day. It's, you know, and so I thought that was really well. And then one of my favorite little passages, if I can read, is um, this one when she's talking about mourning. Giving into mourning feels like going over a waterfall in a barrel or without a barrel. At night, Tiny looks up pictures of waterfalls on the internet. Sometimes this is freeing. You are mourning. You are going over a waterfall in a barrel. And so coming up with original ways to speak about these things, you know, how did you go about that? Or did you, are these just things that popped in your head? Or are these things you've been thinking about for a long time? Or? I mean, part of them is just, it has how I've experienced loss in my own life. So there is an autobiographical element to it in that way. Um, but hopefully I wasn't <laughs> as much of a pain as she is sometimes. Um, that passage made me think about, you know, there's like this minute where, you know, maybe it's after a breakup. It doesn't have to be a huge, um, complete loss of a person on this planet. But like, you have to like, throw away the toothbrush or you have to like take the hair out of the hairbrush when someone is gone and that can be really hard because that's a fact that you, you know you're going over the waterfall in a barrel like that's it um I also was really lucky my um my mom um talked a lot to me about death um ever since I was little and so it was the kind of a kind of conversation that I've really had as long as I can remember and and at times in my life that's felt too intense but it's also something I've always been grateful for, and she's always really encouraged me to think about it with my brain and my heart. And so a lot of the language in here comes from that. And the way the book is presented, it's non-linear. And so at different points, it's like Tiny talks about her brother Kelly before he died, or her mother who had, had died previous, you know, previously as well. And then she comes to the realization they're dead. Kelly is dead. Because that's how grief happens too. It's non-linear as well. You could go along and you're on some type of path and then you hear a song or something and you're right back to that moment. And so I, I really thought the pattern of how you laid that out in the book in such a nonlinear way reflected so accurately bereavement. Thank you. Yeah. And it's confusing too, right? If you're like going to the movies and you, you hear a voice you think you recognize and you're like, oh, they're back, but then they can't be back. So it's kind of a lurch that can be complicated on the page, but I think reflects how grief is for me at least. Mm -hmm. So you talk about the war a lot, mm -hmm. and um, you don't name the war, it's, but it's, you know, and um, it's a foreign war, and her father goes to war. So her mother dies when she's three, mm -hmm. and her father's reaction is to go off to war, like immediately. And then when uh, Kelly, her brother, is graduating high school, his choice from the father is, is go to college or go to war. So he goes to war. So a lot of the book is about the damage war does. Mm -hmm. and and what it can do to the people, not just who were in the war themselves, but the people around them. How's Tiny affected by the war, and what's her attitude about the war? I mean, she doesn't totally get it, right? Like, she just knows that, like, someone is gone, and that when they come back, they're, like, their face is different, or they, they can't quite sit still, and so she, she, in a lot of ways for her, her brother died when he left, um, and I, I don't think that her dad would see it as, oh, he went off to war. Like, you know, her dad would be like, oh, he went off and he was able to take care of himself and meet people and shake the grief that he was holding. Um, but Tiny just sees it as like he left. Um, and I think, 
you know, I've, um, I'm almost 40 and like I've, I've lived in like a really consistent state of our country being at war. And so it felt, um, you know, I've been distant from it as well, but I've certainly known and loved people who have like gone off and changed and come back. And when I lived in Chicago, I was a big part of um, actions against the war. And so, um, you know, the book doesn't get into specifics so much because it is kind of just something that we don't always have to deal with daily. And then sometimes we do deal with daily. So that feels complicated in that space. Like Tiny doesn't really get it, um, but she knows it impacts her and she knows it's wrong. Um, and that is a hard thing for her dad to get because he just is like, well, why don't you like think about it, like learn more about it? But she is very firm in her beliefs. But it's interesting, her perspective as a child, I think she calls it the war over gas and then the gas war, mm-hmm. which is what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, you know, when you see it through the eyes of a child, it's like, oh, yeah. And I think then when her dad comes back, instead of working in the war, he works for the war. Mm-hmm. He talks about that and, and just how you see this childlike perception of what's going on. It's actually so clear. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a way that I think adults should, you know, well, what are we fighting and why is this war over? Mm-hmm. And then are you working for the war in the war? I mean, yeah. it's actually a very clear eyed view of what war is from the child's perspective. Yeah, and then I'm sure her dad's like, well, what, you know, my wife is gone, my son is gone, like, this is what I have to do. This is the way that I know to take care of you and keep you safe. And Tiny's like, I don't want to be safe that way. And then that's also very clear and childlike, but, um, you know, there's there's more to it from her dad's perspective. Well, there's a passage where she basically s- says, like, she doesn't want to know more about the war because then opposing it or would be more complex for her and she just knows it's wrong. So she doesn't want to get anything. So she, it, in that way, it's almost a mature decision. Like, mm-hmm. I know there's more information out there, but I also know it's wrong. So why even look at the more information? I thought that was really interesting take on it. Because we do get lost in these endless arguments, and you go down these holes, and you, you know, it doesn't have to be just about war, about all sorts of things. You get caught up in the minutia. Tiny has the big picture. Mm-hmm. And the big picture is it's wrong. Yeah, which is hard because when people see her saying something's wrong, they're like, oh, there must be something more because we're taught to analyze so carefully and we're taught to look very closely at the thing and then maybe we'll understand more. But, um, you know, thinking about like looking at like different kinds of like camera footage or these sorts of things. And whenever you look at images that closely, part of your brain always thinks it's really happening to you. And so I think Tiny too is like, I've already been through so much loss. I, I know what it is. I don't need to know anything more about it. Um, and that's a different choice for the ending too, because she wants to keep on being alive, even though it's hard. It's a very positive ending. Um, you know, at the end of the book, you have a wonderful set of acknowledgements and you mm-hmm. really go into detail about different things that inspired you. But you also have three names that you have under We Remember. And I read an interview that um, uh, you had done with Westward uh, a few months ago mm-hmm. and, and one of the names jumped out at me and I think it was a veteran mm-hmm. that you had worked with in Chicago. So t- take us through that, who that was, why you remember him and, and maybe how he inspired part of the book as well. Yeah, um, Malachi Richter was um, a... Uh, he was a musician and then a veteran and um, right around when I first moved to Chicago he um, self-immolated by the freeway to protest the war and I was a lot younger then and I could not understand why more people weren't just talking about it all the time it it like um, was suddenly like the whole all the water that I was in and like I I wanted to talk to people about it all the time and we um we led some actions to um, raise awareness, but it, it ended up 
at the end of the day, like there isn't that much that you can do to fix the space, you know? Um, and so I, I've thought a lot about him and I've thought a lot about how to write that moment and whether or not it was my moment to write. But at the end of the day, it really did um, change how I thought about being in a city and change how I thought about activism and community care. Um, and you know, his life isn't like an example for me to learn from. It also was a really personal moment that I went through. But um, the idea that a war could be in one person with themselves um, has really stuck with me and changed how I think about like language even and um, those sorts of spaces. So it felt important to name him in the book, but to not put any really personal details in. Um, he did really love uh, spicy foods and he would grow peppers. And so there's a couple moments in the book where I have like pepper colors or like spicy food, which is like my, my like moment for him in it. But um, I kept a lot of the heavy grief out specifically. You know, Maeve mentioned the, the notes, and you have a bibliography in here, which is also kind of unusual in a novel. Mm -hmm. The notes I found really interesting because there are, there are passages that end up being pieces of poems or pieces of songs or referring to individual songs. It almost really was like sampling in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, were these things that were just knocking about your head, or had you, do you jot things down, you know, as a writer? And how do all those things end up in the book? And what? How did you decide to do a whole notes section? Yeah, um, the notes section, this was my dissertation at DU, and so part of it was just, I had those sources. It made a lot of sense to include them because I, I've loved doing that research, and it feels exciting, and I, you know, I don't need to pretend that I wrote the first Antigone, <laughs> so it felt, it felt good to have all that in there. Um, but I, I, I still am a music writer. I used to do it full time, and so a lot of how I understand how my body is in the world is by whatever I'm hearing. Um, and I think, especially when you're mourning, like having a song that you play all the time or walking into a room and being aware of your, um, for me, being aware of like what I'm hearing has been a really helpful grounding thing. And so that felt like a accurate element to put in it. Um, and some of them too are songs that my friends have sang. And so it also felt like bringing friends along as I wrote. But music is a big part of this because one of the lightness of it, I mean, we talked about the love that's in there and you read the passage about when Hank and Tiny were falling in love, is the dances. Mm -hmm. And so they go to this uh, dance place that's a wonderfully accepting, open environment where Tiny and her, her friend Izzy go and, and just be there. And they have these wonderful set of rules where everybody is welcome and you don't get to, uh, you know, to, to bring any hatred into the space. Take, take us through that, because I thought that was such a those moments were wonderful when they went to the dances. Yeah, those are those are real rules on a real dance space that I used to go to. It's called Chances Dances. Um, and it was in Chicago when I lived there. And um, I am actually not all that much of a dancer myself, but I love being in the room and just, you know, like I'll watch your coat or like I'll make sure you have water and like... You're that good friend. You'll watch all the handbags in the coat. Yeah, and I'm super happy doing it. You just kind of space out and listen to stuff. And so I, I did have a similar moment where I was like, is this really my thing to write about? But like I was definitely there. Um, and it was a collective and it really um, it really helped me track my time in Chicago and a lot of people that I that I love I first saw there um, and so those sorts of like colors and music and spaces are are from Chances Dances which was at a place called The Hideout and then at a place called Danny's mostly when I went um, and you know you could just go and see friends and know that you would be there with like family and move around or listen and it was such a beautiful routine and ritual. 
with the dance in the bulk it's like up in arms mm-hmm. which I thought was funny because uh, the space that they the second space that they use for their dance hall is like prosthetic limb factory yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it's like oh that's a really clever name then but um but they have this wonderful um affirming uh, welcoming environment for non-binary kids and, mm-hmm. and that's very explicit so so why was that an element you wanted to include um that was my life and that was how i figured out how to be in those spaces um up in arms is a is from a um work of art that by Edie fake and it's up in arms up in your arms and they're superimposed on um kind of suits of armor and similar to like love and loss like um fighting and loving can look really similar in certain ways and so it felt um that's out of gratitude to Edie um, for that work. Um, and then there really used to be a prosthetic limb space that became a dancing place in Seattle when I was a kid. Um, and there was this thing called the Teen Dance Ordinance um, in Seattle for a long time, which basically meant that to be able to have an all ages space, you had to have a lot of money for insurance, which effectively shut down a lot of all ages dances. And so I grew up in a minute where like dancing was also a political act. <laughs> and so it really, um, that, that was like a, a nod to that as well. Well, there's nothing like real life, the oddities of real life to inform a, I know, right? a novel, you know, like some <laughs> stuff you just can't make up, right? Yeah, I was like, here they are, we'll put them in. <laughs> well, one of the passages kind of related with the dancing too is Tiny talks about how sometimes from behind she's mistaken for to be a boy or a man. And, um, and sometimes that's okay with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. In the novel, for the most part, I felt like there wasn't a whole lot of exploration about the gender identity, but there were pieces of it. And talk about the balance. Like maybe how much did you want to get into that, or how? Where does that fit into Tiny's thoughts of herself? I think she's letting herself figure it out. You know, um, a lot of. The media that we have around are like just a lot of like societal pressure makes teenagers feel like they need to know like right now, like if you name yourself this or if you come out in this way, this is who you have to be for forever. And and part of it is similar, I think, to the way that her dad feels about her. Like, don't say it for real unless you're sure. Like, I don't know how to take care of you if you're changing, you know, but but Tiny, I think I think she knows that's something that she'll figure out later. But the most important things to her right now are Hank and Izzy and then um, mourning her brother. Um, so I, I like that she is so focused about certain things, but then lets others unfold. Um, and she's not particularly, she's kind of disembodied for a lot of it too, right? She like walks around so much on her own and like likes to fall asleep with people, but like she really is a loner. So I think, I think she has good things coming for her, but she's not so worried about them yet. Yeah, she sits on the roof. There's some nice mm-hmm. passages there. So you teach eighth grade. Tiny is 16. So she's a couple years older than your students. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said you wrote it as a dissertation. So maybe you weren't involved with middle schoolers at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But do you see bits and pieces of Tiny and the kids that you teach every day? And I mean, do you, does, does it come up? I mean, do you think about that sometimes? I do in their focus for sure. And just in their, their clarity about things that adults might say are, are more complex than that. Um, I've also taught college for a long time when I've taught at the jail. And so I think in some of those spaces, like in an MFA program, you can be different ages. And certainly if you're in um, a jail, you are all different ages. And so I think the ability to um, have wisdom from different parts of your life is something that I see in her for sure. Um, but I, I really... 
I try hard to listen really well to my students, but then I also feel it's really important to keep them separate. You know, like I know it wasn't what you're asking, but I wouldn't I wouldn't write about my students directly. But I, I learn a lot from them, and I've definitely learned how to listen better from from teaching them. Mm-hmm. Actually, there was a passage I was just gonna say that you know, Tiny's so perceptive, and she talks about the need to listen. I can't find the page now. I just had it, but it was like listening. Oh, here it is. Listening is crucial. If you hear someone else's story, you have one solution set. And if you also have their body and their exact problem in time, their solution set might be yours too. She she talks a lot about that, about tuning into other people's emotions, life experience, listening and being aware. She seems just so far ahead of her age. I mean, obviously she lost her mom and then she lost her brother to suicide. So she's, she's experienced a lot more, but But I love this idea of having a character who's not so full of angst about their own inner turmoil that you have this young woman who's acutely aware of how other people are feeling as well. Mm -hmm. Because I think she knows that she wouldn't ever, like this is dramatic, but she knows she wouldn't ever kill herself. But she also knows that it was right for her brother. And so like at the very core of it, that necessitates that she becomes a better listener. So... Um, you talk about Tiny knows she's not going to kill herself, but it's beyond that. She has a an extreme desire to live, it seems like. She she wants mm-hmm. to live so that when she meets up with her mother and brother again, she can have all these experiences to tell them, it seems like. like their deaths have given her even more reason to live. And she also like literally looks at her hand and like looks at the music that Kelly leaves her and is like, oh, they're not gone, you know, like I, and so, and that it becomes a responsibility for her. Maybe not necessarily one that she wants and one that she's angry at sometimes, but she, she knows that she um, has a destiny, which is a very like <laughs> Greek tragic mode to be in. Um, but yeah. The idea of a, the Greek tragedies as well. I mean, if you think about it, they're always, it seems to me that it's about your, your, destiny is set mm-hmm. you, your fate is this and the Greek chorus will come in and sort of move you know the plot along but it's almost like you have this destiny the gods have mm-hmm. said it so and yet Tiny seems to almost reject that a little bit even within the context of this being inspired by a Greek tragedy yeah and a lot of it's her rejecting her dad I think because her dad can't get around his grief like her dad literally he still has like his his wife's shoes out by the door and he can't move through that and she loves him like it was important for me to add in parts where they have meals together and they tell each other that they love each other but she almost feels like a a pity for her dad um that he doesn't feel for her and so I think part of what she rejects is that he doesn't see a future for himself where he's not mourning all the time and she does and so that's where she kind of you know quote-unquote takes control of her own destiny um because she's like I can live in this pain but it's not going to end me yeah he's frozen in his grief she's moving through it and and there are people who do both mm-hmm. and you know it's hard when grief is so difficult but if, if you think about the person who died they probably don't want you frozen in your grief for yeah. for a lifetime like tiny's father is and um his reaction first he went away then he comes back it, it's 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 a difficult situation for him i mean he's not able to move on and I felt that was that was pretty powerful, but also a great uh, alternative. To, you, you could it, it put in relief what Tiny was doing and how she was moving through things. Yeah, and he's a little embarrassed by her, I think, because she she wants to talk about it all the time, you know. And he's probably like, "Can we just like have a pizza night, like <laughs> you know?" And so it's also just that's where language comes in too. Like um, 
you know, it, it can be hard to be in a family sometimes. And it's not because anyone is trying to do harm. It's just because you're different people. Um, and, you know, both of their ways are good ways to mourn. But, like, she feels suffocated by him sometimes. And she also wants to help him. And, and when you're a kid, you don't always have the ability to um, be heard in a way that would actually let you help your parent. Um, is this for young adults? I mean, when I was reading it, I didn't think about it. But now that we're in conversations, like this really is a, a young adult book. Was it written with this is a young adult novel? I, I'm not sure, actually. Like sentence structure wise, it is at like a, a reading band that would be appropriate for, for young adults. But um, there, you know, there have been times when I was a teenager where I would be emotionally ready for to read about this. And there would have been times when I wasn't. So my hope is that it finds the people who need it. There's such a clear voice of that young person that mm-hmm. comes through. So that's why I was just wondering. Well, also, you know, young adult novels sometimes experiment more than adult. There's more like mm-hmm. poetry, I think, from the young adult novels that I've read than there is in the typical adult novels. And so it does take some of that freedom, I think, that's in the young adult novel or the teen novel, however you want to say it. Um, it does take some of that aspects of it too. And I think teen readers are more adept maybe at being open to reading uh, poetry in their novels and things like that. I didn't really think of it either as a young adult novel, but but when we talk, as we talk about it, she's she's a 16-year-old character. I mean, I think, to me, I would think the age could be anywhere from 15 to, you know, 100. You know, I, I, as a 55-year-old guy, I was very happy to read it, so. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, because teenagers don't, I think, question different kinds of language than most as adults do. You know, they'll be like, well, why is this in here? But, like, you know, my eighth graders are learning Korean because they love BTS, and then they'll, like, do random paragraphs in Korean and that's amazing, you know, and they'll just be like, well, this is the language I was thinking in today. And so, you know, when they come to something with different images in it or different languages, like that's how the world is. And I think that they walk through that door more easily than adults do, which is a gift and a wisdom, you know. Well, the novel is Tiny. It's by Mairead Case, who has been our guest today at the Radio Book Club. Thank you so much, Mairead. Thank you so much for having me. Well, do tune in to the After Hours edition. It's a podcast-only edition of this show because we're going to have uh, more conversation with Mairead on the Radio Book Club. But as we always do at the end of each episode, we announce the next month's reading selection. So what are we inviting our listeners to read along with us for the month of May, Arson? We're reading a thrilling adventure. We're reading Next Everest by Jim Davidson. He's a climber. He was on Everest um, in the deadliest day in Everest history, 2015, when an avalanche killed 18 people. And he was stranded for a couple days on the mountain. And after a lot of soul searching, he went back up in 2017. And this is a book about grief, dealing with that grief of that day, and also uh, the resilience to pursue his dream. And he's also a Colorado author. Yes, he is. Tune in for that. As always, you can catch the Radio Book Club on KGNU on the fourth Thursday of every month at 9 a.m. But subscribe to the podcast and listen anytime. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.